This is Cody Robbins from Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey, and you're listening to Joby and Shed with the Foshi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and Shed on Foshi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and Shed on the Foshi Creek Podcast. It's not as good to speak the language, but it's close. <laughs> All right, you're listening to the Foshi Creek Podcast. I'm Joby Holland. With me is uh, Mr. Dustin Shed Whitaker of Mossy Oak. In today's episode, we'll be visiting with Mr. Austin Delano. Austin is a habitat and wildlife consultant, as well as being directly involved with the research and development of Mossy Oak Biologic. Uh, Austin is one of the most highly regarded and recognized individuals as it relates to habitat preparation and management. And Austin, we're awful glad to have you today. And like I said, uh, a, lot, a lot of the questions I have for you today is, I need some help and assistance. So I know there's a whole lot of other folks out there like me that are part-time uh, deer farmers or try to be. But you got a lot of answers to that since that's what you do on a on a daily basis. So we're all glad to have you. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, man, I appreciate y'all inviting me and having me on. It's an honor. Uh, give us a little background of who Austin Delano is. Who who are you, and what got you into outdoors, and anything else you want to share with us? Yeah. So. Um, I was actually, I live in Alabama, been here for about uh, 20, well, about 24, 25 years. We've been back here in Alabama, uh, right in the northwest corner of the state. I was actually born out in New Mexico till I was about 10. I guess we lived there kind of around the Gila Mountains and down uh, close to Rio Doso where everybody's uh, familiar with that for elk. And I know Shed's been around there quite a few times, but uh, still got a lot of family that lives there in New Mexico. Um did a little stop in Arkansas uh, when uh, I was in junior high. We lived about 20 miles kind of north and a tad east of Stuttgart. I got baptized into some of the best duck hunting you could ask for as a, as a pretty young kid. Uh, you know, there in the early 90s in the, one of the best flyways there was. So I got to experience that for a few years. And then, like I said, been back here in Alabama since uh, about 96. So, um, this is where we reside, man. I'm right here on the Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi line, just kind of stuck up here in the corner close to Pickwick Lake. So it's a it's a cool part of the world to live in. Yeah, a whole lot of hunting you can do right there close with three states right there, or bordering two other states, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's no uh there's unlimited possibilities for a sportsman in this neck of the woods, you know, whether it be fishing or hunting or whatever you're into. It's a it's a cool part of the world. Well, what, what led you to become involved as far as wildlife habitat management? Did you go to school for that? Is it something you kind of just developed on your own? How did that evolve? Yeah, I actually went to school for forestry. Um, so after I'd finished up a forestry degree, I uh, kind of got to looking around to see what I wanted to do next. You know, some of the state job opportunities that, that I had were a long ways off. I was going to have to move and was pretty newly married at the time, about 20 years ago, and wasn't really in the, uh, the mood to move at the time. So we uh, we stayed here, and I got offered a job to run a, a private wildlife management area. And so kind of started there, and obviously got started with uh, Biologic back in, uh, I guess, about 2006. So working on my 14th or 15th year here um, at Biologic, and this is kind of all I've ever done, man. I grew up, my first job was putting levee gates in rice fields and just being a general farm grunt kind of done that stuff ever since. And so, you know, really got into wildlife when I started running that uh, privately owned uh, management area back in the early two thousands. And so, uh, 
I've just spent a lot of time doing it. You know, it's really, it's been a hobby, but it's also been a job at the same time. So I've spent uh, the majority of the last 20 years just uh, uh, trying to grow better wildlife, you know, not necessarily uh, just for better hunting opportunities, but, you know, for what we are all about here at Mossy Oak, and that's conservation. What is your exact role with Mossy Oak Biologic? What all do you do on a day-in, day-out basis for them? Man, it can really vary. Um, I spend a lot of time in the front of the computer answering questions, um, helping customers out with uh, soil samples and planting recommendations. And that do a, a lot of uh, all the blending and buying of seeds to put together uh, for everything you see on the store shelf. So, you know, everywhere that we've got seed represented from small mom and pop independent co-ops and, and farm stores to your tractor supplies and Walmart. Um, I work with all our growers to, to put these seeds together and try to get them on the shelf in a timely manner. So um, it kind of varies from day to day. I still have a lot to do with our, our Gamekeepers magazine. I've um, been writing for it uh, since my first year here. So we're going to celebrate 15 years with Gamekeeper magazine coming up. So um, done a lot of online content uh, writing for, for us and for a lot of our licensees. So um Never a dull day. There's always something different to deal with. Before we start getting some questions, Shed, you you know, I'm sure a lot of personal things or things about Austin. You want anything you want to share? Any questions you want to ask of, of him before we start getting into specifics of, you know, food plot preparation and whatnot? Did Did you get your workout in today? <laughs> I did, man. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. The last year and a half, I've been downright lazy. Um, I'm turning forty this year, and I just don't have the drive that uh, I had when <laughs> when I first met you 15 plus years ago and was, you know, hitting the gym six days a week and, and lived for it. I still like it, but you know how it is. Your body doesn't let you do what uh, your mind wants to anymore. No, I did. Yeah. yeah, my body, it hurts every day now. It don't, yeah. it don't want to react. It just hurts. I think I saw something on your Facebook page. It was probably in the last year, but – I think you were out maybe in your family hiking and you, I don't know, like if you grabbed a branch and did some pull-ups, I think, but you know, the hands that went. So anyway, I thought, and my son does a bunch of those. So after I saw it, I thought I got to try one. I don't know that I even, I think I got about three quarters of the way up. I didn't ever clear the bar. You know, that's enough. I can't do it. So you made it look awful easy. Well, you know, last year when everything got shut down for COVID, um, Man, we spent, my family, we spent a lot of time camping, you know, with gyms being shut down. You couldn't go anywhere and get a workout in. <clears throat> we did a lot of improvising, you know, out in the woods, pull-ups on tree branches, whatever it took. I'm, <clears throat> I'm kind of wired pretty high, so I had to get rid of some energy at some point every day. Workout's my best best solution. You know, if you'll check out Shed's, uh, either his or his wife's Facebook page, He's got some new abs. He's he's been kind of exhibiting around a little bit, don't you? Shane? I ain't never I ain't posted them though. Well, I saw, I saw a little look of you on there. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe you my have. wife might have, but I yeah, I, I didn't. You're proud of her, man. <laughs> you trans. I got that. I, I got that tan from the beach where it's real red right here, and then it goes to white. It's multi-leveled with lines from here across. I, yeah, I needed to. Uh, a good solid two weeks to get my tan right before I post anything like that. All in due time, right, Shed? Yeah, that's right. Well, Austin, tell us what what steps does the average guy need need to take as far as if he's establishing a new food plot or getting ready to put in food plots this 
later this summer. And, and in your opinion, what are the best variety of varieties a common hunter needs to look at trying to put out this year? Yeah, man. I mean, really one of the, one of the most simple and, and first steps a guy can do is, is getting a soil sample taken. It, we, we preach it and I feel like I say it 15 times a day, but you know, it's, it's one of the most important steps in growing a successful crop because what that soil sample is going to do is tell you what that particular piece of dirt that you're you know, looking to plant, you know, what you're going to be dealing with there from a, a pH standpoint, you know, which is the acidity of your soil and, and then your nutrient status as far as what fertilizers you may or may not need. But that eight, nine dollar soil sample goes so far into helping you apply what you what you do need and don't apply what you don't need to your soil because everybody's is different. And just because a little chunk of ground with you know, that you've got now used to be in row crop doesn't necessarily mean it's in great shape for planting, but it might. But that $9 soil sample is going to tell you, you know, most of everything you know to be successful on, you know, getting a good food plot going. How much, like when you're doing a soil sample, how much of that, like mm -hmm. say your food plot's five acres, how many should you take? Or if you're saying well, in a, like a cattle pasture, yeah. how many should you take? Yeah, Great question, because the bigger the area possibility, you might need to take multiple samples just depending on how that area had been treated in the past, you know. So um, if I've got a, let's just take, for instance, a perfect rectangle five acre field that I'm going to plant the whole thing in a food plot, I'd probably look at least taking a sample from each third, you know, a third of the way up on each end uh, to get a little bit of a representation of what one end of the field looks like versus the other. Um, chances are they're going to come out really close and, you know, you can make a, a decision when you're getting your lime and your fertilizer, just kind of splitting it down the middle of, of those two recommendations you get. Uh, on the other hand, you might have a field that, you know, one end of the field doesn't need a whole lot of one particular nutrient and the other end of the field is very deficient in it. And so the bigger the field, the more samples you might need to take to, you know, get a, a real good idea of what's out there. And these smaller you know, quarter acre to one acre food plots that most guys are dealing with, you know, one, one sample is going to be plenty to represent that area. But, you know, when you start getting up into five plus acres, you might want to start looking at several samples to, to give you a good idea. Now, is there anything you can plant that will help your soil in those food plots? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of warm season uh, plants you can grow, you know, stuff that gets planted this time of year. Uh, if your soil is, you know, pretty poor or has a lot of uh, real low organic material, um, which we see a lot of this day, ground that has been farmed over and over and over again, a lot of times it's pretty depleted of organic material. Uh, there's not a lot of crop residue in there. You know, this time of year, you can you can do a lot of things that'll build your soil. These summertime legumes that we, you know, use so much of the iron and clay peas, uh, mung beans, sorghum and sunflower mixes. You know, these are great for adding, obviously, nutrition to your deer through the spring and summer, creating some seed for turkeys for the fall. And then, you know, all that is creating a lot of biomass, basically, that can be worked back into the soil the next year and build some organic material into, into the soil. Now, Austin, how about the guy who says, I, you know, I don't know how to get a soil sample or I'm not going to do that. I'll just go dump a bunch of fertilizer and lime on there. How big a mistake is that and or big a waste of money is that for someone to do that or is that better than nothing yeah i mean that's that's a great point um we see, we see that happen a lot you know guys just do what they've always done and maybe it's worked pretty well in the past so they just continue to 
But man, you can really be spending a lot of money that's just unnecessary um, by just putting out a certain amount of, of this every year, just because that's the way you've always done it. Like I said, that sample really goes a long way in telling you, yes, you do need lime. No, you do not need lime. You know, where on that scale you're at, um, as well as what nutrients you need to add uh, through fertilizer, if any. You know, so many people, uh, especially when you get into the South, have been fertilizing their fields the same way for years, but they've never taken a soil sample to add that lime that's needed that's really the catalyst for those plants to be able to uptake and use all these nutrients that they've put out over the years. So if you've got a really low pH, you can throw a lot of fertilizer at it, but it's going to be kind of a um, diminished return on it. You're looking at, you know, let's just say you've got a five and a half pH. Um, you may be looking at only being able to use 50% of the nutrients that you broadcast out with a pH that low. There's a lot of variables that can go on each end of that, but, um, just as a general rule of thumb, you're losing a lot of money and efficiency by not adding lime to a soil that needs it. So that that's one of the first things I'm going to look at on the soil sample is where's your pH because it's kind of the kickstart to to everything. Where's a person go to get a soil sample if they want to do that? What's the what's the easiest route to take? Now we've tried to make it as as easy as possible you know folks can jump on the biologic website there's a spot on there where you download the soil test and fill out on there you know what you're planning to plant and a little bit of other information go to the field that you're going to plant i like to use the sharpshooter show and instead of just digging a hole in the ground you know knock the top inch or so of dirt off so you're not getting any vegetation in the sample and and basically take you a slice of soil in that two to six inch deep range about the width of that sharpshooter shovel you know enough that'll be two really big double handfuls of soil once you crumble it all up but you want to get a, a section or a profile of the soil not just go out there and kick up a big dirt hill and, and throw it in a ziploc bag that's better than nothing but we're really wanting to get a representative of what's going on and where the root zone is actually going to be on these plants so not necessarily what's on top of the ground but what's in that two to six inch range you see that in our lab there in memphis and you know like in 48 72 hours the max you've already got a sample results in your email that tells you okay joe y'all we're going to plant clover in this field here's our recommendations on lime and fertilizer specific to the dirt that you sent in and what you're wanting to plant you know, Austin, what's some of the common questions that you get from folks that you kind of see over and over again from common questions to common mistakes that, that people make in general when they're when they're trying to establish or, or put in their own food plots? Yeah, man, it's, uh, you know, the old saying, there's no bigger gamblers in the world than farmers is, is true because, you know, we're dealing with the most unpredictable thing we have, and that's the weather. And so between not being able to control weather, which is such a major part of growing crops, you really have to try to do everything else as well as you can to minimize, you know, mistakes anywhere else so that maybe potentially the only failure you can have is because of weather that obviously we have no control over. So uh, really just the preparation going into it, trying to do it too fast and trying to do it on, um, you know, a real short time span rather than, you know, spacing it out and doing stuff in steps um that are gonna you know that are proven to be more successful ways to grow food plots instead of just rolling in there on one weekend and trying to do everything in a rush 
you know, and, and potentially not doing uh, a lot of things justice. The seed that you're putting in the ground and, and your time and everything else. So um, just having a plan uh, put together. And as we were talking about soil sampling is two of the biggest things and just having those two things you know, ready before the planning process so that you're not going in and rushing and making um, mistakes that, you know, kind of negate all the time and work you put into it. You know, I, I've primarily been a, I guess, a fall food plot person. I'm not, I've tried to do some clover in the spring and not had any any luck with it. And I think I'm the only person I've seen and hasn't had luck putting in clover. But what would you suggest for somebody, do you, you know, having something in the spring that, that to have in there all year for, spring and fall or just fall what would be your recommendation yeah man there's there's a lot of variables to that obviously the size of the property and how many food plots you're planting you know do you have one or do you have 10 you know that always makes a difference in in what i'm gonna suggest or try to help a guy plant because uh, you know if if he's just got one one acre field on on 40 acres um you know he's gonna have to make that as productive as possible at least you know 10 to 12 months out of the year to to really have that plot be effective for him and constantly being attractive and and pulling deer in now if you on the other end of the spectrum got you know 400 acres and, and 15 acres of food plots you know you can start being a little bit more um looking at more diversity and you know having several different things growing out there all at different times of the year um so it kind of depends on how much you've got plant and the area that you're dealing with but you know my suggestion to most guys is always you know be realistic about the area you've got and what and think have a plan together on what you want to plant you know if you're looking for maximum attraction a lot of guys are going to be double cropping these fields they're going to be putting something in in the spring and summer you know for nutrition and attraction like the peas and the beans Um, but they're not counting on these to be there in the fall and the winter it's more of just a forage, you know, a place they can come, just a destination feeding plot. And then we're going to roll that right back into a cool season, you know, food plot with cool season varieties in it, um, you know, in the late summer, early fall. So that's always an option for a lot of guys. And then you've got the perennial route, like we were talking with clover, um, where you, you know, depending on where you live at, you might lose a couple of months uh, with your clover. You know, January and February can be really tough. You know, in the northern part of the states where you get a lot of snowfall, and we we do see deer digging for you know clover up out of snow all the time. But you know, once that really really cold weather sets in, your clover kind of goes dormant. And so, you know, if you live in the extreme northern states, uh, clover is really good uh, through your cool and and kind of intermediate growing season. But in that coldest part of the winter. You know, having carbohydrates and higher energy source uh, food plots, brassicas, things in that world, you know, might be a little bit more beneficial to you as far as having food during that coldest part of the year. Tell us a little bit about brassicas. And it seemed like I could be wrong. I don't know the history of brassicas by any means. But to me, it seems like when it came to the forefront, well, it was was biologic. It seemed to really bring brassicas to the to the to the regular folks i guess you know they're put, putting in food yeah. is that kind of true and also tell us about brassicas and what made them so popular and why someone should or should not consider utilizing those during that during the fall yeah man they're they're a really cool plant and they you know they kind of encumbrance a lot of different varieties you've got rapes and you've got turnips and you've got uh, swedes you've got sugar beets um radishes all these are, are fairly related um but they're all heavy tonnage producing 
varieties of plants that once whitetails figure out what they are and get acclimated to it as a food source, it's really hard to not have them somewhere on your property because it does produce so much food in a short period of time, even in small plot situations. So, you know, we, we feel like we were probably some of the first ones definitely to bring some of the, the really new and improved varieties over here to the States. You know, years ago, uh, Toxie went over to uh, New Zealand, saw what they were doing over there with a lot of their livestock and, and deer they were raising with uh, these improved varieties of brassicas and clovers. And, um, you know, that's kind of where we took off with it there back in the late nineties. And, you know, these are, these are not your, uh, garden store varieties of uh, brassicas you know they've been improved upon you know multiple multiple and multiple times just like the crops you see growing in the fields these days that we produce so much corn and and soybeans with have been improved upon in the row crop world ours are kind of in the same boat just on the forage standpoint you know it's it's varieties that are more, more cold tolerant uh, more disease and pest tolerant gonna have just better forage qualities to them all together um, as some of the, the really older varieties do. So that, that's what we were looking for and what Toxie came up with years ago when he went over there and visited and saw what they were doing with these, you know, new and improved varieties of brassicas. So uh, we use them heavily. We use them in a lot of blends. We also have them as standalone products like Maximum that's, you know, on an all brassica blend of just rape and turnips. That's probably the, the blend that we have sold the most of, of over the last, you know, uh, almost three decades of doing this is is the maximum it's just been a it's been a home run since since day one and especially when you start getting up into the mid-south and the northern climates um those brassicas really start to you know shine up there just because their ability to hold a lot of deer even through the coldest parts of the winter when all the other crops are gone you know when all the row crops are out of the fields and the, the native browse in the woods is gone you know, with these brassica crops that can grow eight, 10 or 12 tons of, of forage per acre in a, you know, 60, 75 day growing season, all of a sudden you've got the place to be when you've got food plots with that kind of tonnage in them. I've used most, most of the biologic brassicas that you have. And it seems to me, and just from my observation that they're not all like do at the same time. They're not all palatable to the deer. I've seen the deer walk through certain of the brassicas that I've had, because I've kind of had them in different sections, where the sugar beets, they the the leaves, they just tear them up early. But now the, the mm-hmm. beet, they don't worry about them early. But the radishes, they will early. The sugar beets and the green globe turnips there, that green globe mm-hmm. touch those things. So it may, you know, end of January, February. There's kind of different times. Yeah. Is that accurate? Is that what you've seen? Yeah, with- yeah, it is. That's one reason we spend as much time as we can when we get a new variety from over there testing it first and just seeing how the deer respond to it, you know, because they they may have an idea of what we think we're going to experience as far as palatability and when the deer are going to use it. Um, But you never know until you get it in the field in multiple spots across the the country and see, you know, exactly how everybody's whitetails respond to it. But like you were saying, there's different varieties that – you know, like the radishes and some of the hybrid rapes that we use that, man, they like them just about right out of the ground. They'll start using them pretty hard. And then we've got varieties like the Green Globe Turnip that you mentioned that we use in several blends that we're putting it in there for a reason. We're putting it in there because most of the time deer don't really get on it until, like you were saying, when it gets really cold. And these are these are as cold tolerant varieties as we can get our hands on. And so we want to extend that growing season into the fall 
so that these plants are still upright and still producing forage, you know, when everything else is kind of shut down. So varieties like that green glover, they're killer for that mid-December all the way into February time period, providing you've got enough ground that they hadn't wiped them out by then um, of having, you know, a lot of groceries when almost everything else is gone. Most of my hunting's done in southern Illinois and in northern Missouri. And around that August 15th here, we're about a month, I guess, ahead of kind of the, the southern, mm-hmm. y'all around more September 15th. But when do you when do you look to plant your brass to the south and kind of in, in, the, in the Midwest? What is the date that people kind of need to target? Yeah, it, that's probably, and you asked a while ago, you know, what was probably one of the number one questions that we answered. And a lot of it pertains to when guys should be putting these blends in, ideally. When should you put it in the ground to have the most success? Obviously, soil moisture is, is a big deal. And so when so many people, especially where we live at down here, need to be getting these brassicas in the ground, also lines up with two of our driest months of the year, which is, you know, August, September, and, and the first half of October. And so soil moisture is a big part of it. But I try to tell people, hey, if you live in the northern third of the country, uh, look to that last couple of weeks of July maybe first week of August, um, because we're, we're really wanting to get 60-plus frost-free growing days on these brassica blends and really all of our fall blends before you start experiencing, you know, heavy frost. And what those frosts do is it, it just slows the growing process down. It doesn't kill the plant by any means. But, you know, the later you get in the fall, your photo period is getting shorter as far as the length of days. Uh, soil temperature is going down. Um, and you're getting frost at night and all these things just slow the growing process down. So I really tell guys to back up about 60 days from whatever the average first frost date is in their area and try to be prepared to plant right there. Um, if you only get 30 days, you can still grow a lot of groceries, but I, I want to be closer to that 60 uh, day range. So a lot of people are like, well, that sounds really early to be planting them. Um, but in my experience, that last very last half of July, early August for the northern third of the country, early August up into mid-August is probably ideal for the Midwest. Um, and then down here in the south, I try to get ours in, you know, in, in late August, really early September. And you can you can add another two weeks of that if you go into really the deep south. So it's, um, like I said, 60 days, I think, is, is a really good number to shoot for of frost-free growing days on these brassica blends. And you're obviously looking for when that rain comes through. So, you, again, I've always used kind of August 15th as kind of the date I try to look to. But then if there's a rain coming August the 12th, I'm not worried about the 15th. I'll try to I'll plan on the 11th. Sure. How much leeway do you yeah. have around that, give or take? The, the problem I have is trying to do it too early. I just worry about if I have a rain and having that drought and then burning up. Yeah, it's a, it's a fine line to try to walk because you can obviously get in too early. And, and get a crop up and going and then experience a two or three week drought. And it really, really hurts its feelings. And sometimes it doesn't recuperate. Like you, if you just waited two weeks and then planted, you'd have had a better field. So that's part of the gamble of it. Um, <clears throat> there is a lot of leeway on both sides because some years we have really early uh, frost move in and just, you know, things get cooler faster one year than they do another. Um, and on the other hand, you know, some, some years you have some really warm spells way on up into October you know, even in the northern states, and maybe they experience a, a, a what, you know, the old-timers would call a killing frost two and three weeks later than they usually would, and that just extends your growing season a little bit. So, 
Um, I like to be on the front end and have some cushion in case we do have a really early cold snap, you know, but uh, there's always a fine line to walk between not putting it in so early that, you know, weeds take over. And, uh, you know, down here we have a bad problem with uh, army worms, obviously being a something we have to deal with every fall. And it seems like, you know, any year where you have a lot of tropical depressions, um, hurricane type events, that Gulf moisture and warm air tends to intensify the, the spread of army worms up into the northern part of the southern states. And so you can have a food plot planted August 15th, you know, and it'd be 12, 15 inches tall in Nebraska's and really nice, pretty field. And in mid-September, army worms walk across it in two or three days and, you know, wipe it out like a biblical plague. So um, that's something we have to put up with down here. Just it's uh, some years way worse than other intoxicants. Toxie has a constant battle with him um, down there at his place. You know, the biggest mistake that I have made is overseeding brassicas. You know, is any coming out? Yeah. You know, I'm put my hand out of the field. Oh, yeah. And when I kind of realized that, hey, I've been planting more than I should here, the next year I was going to make really sure I had it on the lowest setting and walk as quick as I could walk, you know. <laughs> Your bags are like, a, what is it, a quarter, like the seven pound bag or whatever it is, like a quarter of for a quarter acre, I believe it is. And I was probably on an eighth of an acre. And when I went through my third bag, I thought, okay, what's going on here? And I put down the, my, one of my brackets was busted on my, on my cedar and I was just pouring it out of there. Now, so I was yeah. overseeding it again, but I wasn't trying to, but then I tried to overcompensate for that by coming in afterwards thinking, well, it's too thick. I need to disc that up. By that time it was in September. I was really knew I was pushing it, but I thought, heck, I'm just going to disc it back up, replant it. And of course, it never did do what it should have. So, talk about overseeding a little. Yeah. When you do overseed, what's your best action to do, if any, there? Yeah, it's really easy to do with the small seeded uh, plants like brassicas, and they are very uh, prevalent to being overseeded because they are a small seed. But that one seed grows such a large plant and takes up so much, you know, root space. Um, not only is it easy to, to overseed it, but when you do, your field looks really good for two or three weeks usually. You know, it just looks like a carpet. And then all of a sudden, everything starts running out of fuel. You know, there's just too many plants growing per square foot of that particular variety for it to continue on. Um, I mean, it's the same reason a, a row crop farmer knows to the thousand how many plants and, you know, of corn per acre he's going to plant because he's putting an allotted amount of fuel out there for that corn to make. And if he overdoes it, you know, he's going to start seeing his yield go down. The brassicas being small, it's easy to overseed them. And a lot of people overestimate the size of their plot. They think it's a half acre. It's more like a quarter. And they've got one acre worth of seed going down on a quarter acre. Because like you said, if, if some is good, then a whole lot ought to be a lot better. But um, with the brassica varieties, especially if it's a blend that's nothing but brassicas, you know, or, or has a very high percentage it's really easy to overdo it because you think that you're not putting any out. And it's just so important with those hand seeders to um, set them really conservative and make multiple passes, you know, with the allotted amount of seed you, you've got, you know, so if you've got a half acre and you've got two quarter acre bags, just put one quarter acre bag in your spreader, see how far you can get across it. See if you can cover the whole half acre once walking, then do your second bag walk in the opposite direction so you're trying to get as even distribution of those seeds as, as possible with with the tools you got at hand and that that's the most 
probably over overlooked thing that so many people do. You get away with a little bit on wheat, oats, things with cereal grains. You can overdo them a little bit and still be okay. But with the brassicas, they're pretty sensitive, especially when they're bulb producing varieties like the, the green globe and the radishes. You know, there's a point of diminishing returns there. You can go over a little bit. And with the blends we've got and the poundage recommendations we've got them at, it's really on the top end. You know, I, I actually would lot rather be, you know, just say with maximum, which we suggest at nine pounds the acre, I would a whole lot rather plant it at seven than I had 12. You know, 12 is just too much. You're just not going to see a great results with it, most likely. Back down at seven, it may look a little thin at first, but those plants, man, they cover so much ground. Um, so I would rather be thin than I had too heavy on those particular varieties. One last thing on brass is do you recommend combining any of those, like mixing your mixing turnips with radishes, for example, or would you rather have on a quarter acre field, eighth of that field being radishes and the other eighth of that field being uh, your turnips or does it matter? Yeah. So if you've got a big enough field to do, you know, what I've kind of coined as plot partitioning, you know, sectioning off different parts of the field and, and using different varieties. Uh, I love doing that. I love giving them diversity, especially like Shed was talking about a while ago. If you've got a five-acre food plot, well, I'm probably going to have at least three different things growing in there, you know, so that I've got, I'm giving the deer <clears throat> multiple sources of food so that they can have the right to be picky. And if they feel like eating clover today, they can. If they want to eat radishes over here, they can. If they want something uh, like maximum or, or winter bulbs and sugar beets that's really going to be good in that mid and late season i might have some of that too so yeah the more variety and diversity you can give them the better and if you've got a big enough field to separate it and use multiple varieties because they're you know whitetails can be very finicky when they have a lot of different food sources you know some places you plant a food plot and it wouldn't matter what you plant they're going to mow it to the ground because they have a lack of food resources other places you might be on the opposite end of the spectrum and there's food everywhere. The native browse might be great. You know, there may be still row crops in the field that they're using pretty heavily. Uh, neighbors may have a lot of food plots. And in, in, that, in that situation, you know, you want to have a lot of different things available for them so that you can outcompete the neighbor, so to speak, or at least have something that they always know they can come to your property and use. What's your thoughts, Austin, from a cereal grain perspective? What uh, oats or what, for the part of the buffet, as far as cereal grains go, what, what do you recommend? Man, we, we use all different types. You know, obviously we use a lot of forage wheat. It's just really hard to beat. Uh, oats, I'm a huge fan of. Triticale and, and rye grain, you know, not to be confused with rye grass, but rye grain. We, we use all those in different percentages. Um, they're, they're really hard to beat from a deer forage standpoint. They're, you know, economical, and we use them in a lot of our big blends, you know, 40 to 50 pound uh, cereal grain blends where you've got maybe 70% of the of the blend of cereal grains, you know, maybe some annual clovers and maybe a little bit of radishes and, and some rape or turnips or something like that in there so that, you know, the, the cereal grains are the most prevalent part of the blend. Obviously, you see a little bit better production the further north you go out of the mo most cold tolerant varieties like rye grain and triticale. Um, and then wheat notes get used a lot more in the in the southern uh, states but um, hard to go wrong with any of them they're all great soil builders and honestly if I've got a brand new uh, field that I'm wanting to establish a perennial like you were talking earlier in clover in um, a lot of times I'm going to split that field and and use a cereal grain in that with that clover planting that first year 
because that clover is going to be slower to establish than your grains. You know, your cereal grains give something for the deer to, to browse and, and forage on while your clover is getting its root system established. And, you know, then the following spring, usually your, your clover really blows up that second growing season. So I really like using a wheat or an oat, triticale, whatever you like to mix in with that first perennial plant and just to give them something to, to browse on while it gets established. Important to, to rotate, you know, if you have radishes and on one plot, it's important to put something different there. Like I say, I haven't done any spring food plots, so I've kind of always feel like I am rotating from weeds to, you know, back mm-hmm. to grows up in there, back to uh, the radishes I may put in or sugar beets. But it's important to, to have a rotation like you typically do with corns and soybeans. Yeah, it certainly doesn't hurt. You know, there is a, a fairly increased risk on your soil if you've been planting the heavy brassica blends let's say you've been planting maximum four or five years in a row in the same field those brassicas they can be pretty taxing on the soil and take some nutrients out of it you know more than other uh, nutrients so and other crops so you do have to be careful about using one thing for so long that that crop can be susceptible to soil-borne diseases and that's that's something that the brassica family of plants definitely can be. Uh, every, every place is different. One, might, one guy might be able to use them every year for a, a decade, never have a lick of trouble. And, and on the other end, you might have some guy that just uses it three or four years in a row and starts to see some um, crop damage uh, with it coming out of the ground because there's a, a soil-borne disease in there that that family of plant is susceptible to. And so rotating is, is obviously always going to be a great deal whether you go every two or three or four years and, and use them. I really like just using a perennial, you know, for four or five years, whenever it starts to play out, rotate a, an annual in there and, and vice versa so that you've always got something different growing. I'm never afraid to use them for two or three years in a row, but you do want to start rotating it eventually so that you minimize that risk of creating something in the soil that's going to be a problem for a long time because it's, it's pretty hard to get rid of once it's there as far as those soil-borne diseases go. How, how can you get rid of those? Man, it, basically it's letting the field rest, planting a cover crop in it or, or something that's totally different than what you have been using and uh, letting the field rest and, you know, letting Mother Nature kind of deal with it. A lot of people just don't have a problem with it, like Joel was saying, because they let it grow up in weeds all spring and summer. Then they go back in there with, uh, you know, in fall and plant the brassicas again. So a lot of people don't have a lot of problem with it, but if you're constantly growing a heavy, heavy brassica crop in there year after year after year after year, um, and not really doing anything or rotating another crop in there, you're starting to set yourself up for some potential problems. So letting a field rest or just using some totally different crops on another family level, as far as you know, using legumes and cereal grains and stuff like that that are not going to be quite as taxing on the soil. What is the difference in kind of a specialized blend like your like your biologic products compared to your bulk seeds you get at some of your your stores? Kind of a generic bulk seed. What's the difference in the in the two? Well, we we work really hard every year to try to have you know the freshest seed available, obviously, and and I, like we were talking earlier, the best varieties that we can find for you know wildlife. And so there's there's definitely a cheaper way to go about building. Uh, food plot blends and when we then the way we do it but we're trying to have you know we've always tried to have a premium product we know we're not ever going to be the cheapest one on the shelf but we're having we're 
we've had that guarantee on the bag that says if you do you know, you know all the planting process as right as you can and mother nature helps you out you know we've got a guarantee on that bag that our stuff works and there's a lot of other people that can't do that they're they're not going to back up their you know their seed to that to that level but we we feel that strongly that the varieties that we use are superior in a lot of ways that if you do everything right on your end uh, this seed's going to work for you you know and it's going to do what it's designed to do so um, all that comes to the price you know there's um there's definitely a lot of stuff for sale out there that there's not even a tag on the bag you're not real sure what you got and, and w- when the last time it was germ tested and, and no background on the actual variety name and as we were talking earlier some of these varieties are just um, just because it's wheat or just because it's a, a brassica doesn't mean it's the best one available for deer. You know, some people don't see it that way. And they say, just like a bullet and gun's a bullet and gun. They're not real, they're not real worried about what grain it is or, or brand, but everything's got a different application. You know, we're trying to have the best stuff possible for a guy to plant, you know, for his wildlife. And, and something we've always tried to send home with people is that at the end of the day, the seed you choose is going to be the cheapest part of the equation. You know, your time, you know, your fuel, your tractor, rent and equipment, tax on your land, you name it, all that stuff put together. And a lot of the first thing, a lot of people want to skimp out on the seed and they'll try to cut their cost and use something that may not be, you know, as good as they could get. And so, but at the end of the day, the seed is almost always the very cheapest part of the food plot equation, but sometimes it gets skimped out on because it's an easy place to find something that's cheaper. That's right. And, and then you find out about that when it's too late. Cause like I said, we just got a small window to get it planted. And if she don't come up the way you want it, I mean, there's your whole falls gone. You know, there's not much you can, yeah. not you can do once you miss that window. How long is that seed good for Austin? If you say you bought some maximum, you don't plant all of it this year. Is it good for next year? Yeah, absolutely. The biggest thing I tell people is keep, keep it somewhere cool and dry, you know, keep it out of the humidity. Uh, or a place that you've got a lot of big temperature swings and just try to keep it somewhere that's fairly consistent and dry. And a lot of people store it in a basement or in a cooler, which all works good. The the lower the temperature, probably the better up to a certain point. It's, it's the moisture. You know, you don't want something that's constantly getting really humid and then drying out because you're just, you're setting that seed up to, to drop its germination rate uh, a lot quicker than if it's kept somewhere cool and dry. Man, we've had maximum be five and six years old kept on a store shelf somewhere and somebody plants it and it they've still got over 90 percent germination you know there's there's some outliers like soybeans they typically don't hold a real great germ over over more than a, a year or two's time corn i found corn that was five and six years old no problem you know comes up great so um the clover is a little bit of a different story because you you know all of our clover is coated it's got an inoculant coated to that seed uh, which is going to give it its best chance to germinate versus just having raw seed. So over a two, uh, probably about the three-year mark, your your uh, inoculant can start to expire. And that's just a bacteria that's that's bound to that seed to help it come up better. That inoculant can start going bad on you in three to four years on, on coated clover. And when I say go bad, your percentage is just driving down. So try not to keep that stuff more than two or three years. But a lot of stuff, man, if, if you've got leftover from one year to the next, absolutely no problem in storing it somewhere cool and dry and using it the next season. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, Shig. I keep a lot of seed, five-gallon buckets in my garage or in my basement. And I and, and oh, yeah. I season like when season's over. And, you can you know, you can find 
good seed at discounted rate, you know, a little less than maybe right when it's done. And I'm glad it's good because I got quite a bit. I'm relying on uh, on some of that, you know, this for this fall. A really good way to test it real quick. You know, if you've ever got a bag that you're questioning two, three weeks before you're going to plant, take a couple of different 10 seed blocks out of that, put them in a wet paper cloth in the windowsill in a Ziploc bag like we did when we were in elementary school. And and you'll get them to germ inside that wet paper towel. And if you've got two or three, you know, sections of 10, you know, and they all come in at that, you know, eight and nine of them germinating for 10, you know, your germination rate's probably 80 to 90% or better. So that's a quick way to have a, you know, pretty easy way to find out just what your germ rate probably is on that particular bag, you know. You know, almost many, many years ago, one thing my, my dad and I did, or he told me to do, kind of on the edge of, as before we had food plots, but we we had agricultural fields. We had corn, soybeans, but uh, some of the woods there, a lot of honeysuckle and briars and such, had me, you know, just fertilize it. And the difference in just how much browse, increased browse we got from the honeysuckle and everything else uh, was, was very noticeable. Would you recommend when folks are putting in their food plots and, and they get their soil test and they're got their lime and fertilizer they need to put down, would, would you suggest or or would you not, I guess, trying to fertilize maybe into the, the edges around the food plot, get a little bit more browse and more food form as well, take a little pressure off that food plot? Absolutely. Um, you know, native browse, even in even in the fall and the winter, when the percentage of it that was available is a lot less than it was back during April, May, and June, but it still makes up a huge part of their diet. I mean, it's, they're going to spend 20 to 35% of their time probably in food plots in the fall and winter. And the rest of the time they're going to spend eating sticks and leaves and all kinds of stuff. We see them eating, you know, in the woods just because that's, that's how they're wired. And so if you've got areas that have a lot of native browse in them, uh, like you're talking about honeysuckles and, and green briars and stuff like that, a lot of stuff we just see is weeds and, and brush, but it still makes up a big percentage of what they eat. So, yeah, fertilizing the edge of food plots is, I'm all for it, uh, especially if you've gone in and done any type of habitat improvement on, on what you're fertilizing. You know, if, if it's nothing but sweet gum trees and privet hedge, I'm probably not going to try to give them a whole lot of fuel. Um, I'm going to spend my time with some herbicides trying to get rid of those, you know, so that <clears throat> better stuff can grow in their place, you know, whether it be green briars or blackberries and ragweed and, and good stuff that uh, deer definitely eat a lot of. So you want to watch what you are fertilizing and make sure it's not undesirable, uh, low quality species. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of taking old fields. Uh, maybe you've got plenty of food plots, but you've got other areas that are open, you know, taking those and using herbicides to get rid of the undesirable stuff in it that's taking up canopy, you know, is shading stuff out and taking up root space and letting letting weeds grow up in there because that's where whitetails are going to spend a lot of time is in, in thick grass and weeds, you know, whether it be raising a fawn, walking through it and grabbing a few bites to eat. Um, it's just kind of old field management. You know, it's, it's what we used to see whitetails in all the time when we were kids because that was their favorite place to be is old grown up fields, you know, with a wide variety of plants in it. And so if you've got plenty of food plots, fertilizing a, a spot like that, you know, to increase the, uh, nutrition and palatability, the taste of those weeds to those deer, uh, all the better. Like I said, you just want to make sure that it is a desirable species and that we're not in there, you know, fertilizing a bunch of junk. I want to ask you a few questions as far as kind of timber management goes and creating bedding areas a little bit. And 
kind of a selective herbicide would be a part of that. But before before we do it, which you kind of you started talking about a little bit there, but tell us food plot wise from a soil prep standpoint, most people are, are at least disking or breaking the dirt up somehow with something that they have they're planting. But what all do you do from a soil preparation standpoint, given that we've, we've already done the, the soil sample, we've got the fertilizer and done that. Mm-hmm. From the standpoint of putting a seed in the ground, what all preparations are you making from start to finish? Yeah, so first thing to look at is what are you planting and what's the size of that seed? You know, if we're planting something really big like chufa or corn, you know, that's a large seed that's going to have a lot of energy to, to come up out of the ground um, when you cover it a little deeper. You know, we're, you want to make sure whatever type of equipment you're going to use to plant that is going to get the majority of your seed down there at the inch, inch and a half deep. Uh, for those larger seeds, you know, so covering that seed uh, after if it's in a broadcast situation, making sure you've got something, you know, that's going to help you cover that seed. Ideally, roll a cultivator over it after you're all said and done to make sure you've just got really good seed to soil contact everywhere. And on the other hand, stuff with really small seeds, brassicas, stuff in the clover, alfalfa, those tiny seeds, um, you know, and we're wanting to make sure with everything it's good seed soil contact with those small seeds, quarter inch. That's all we need it. And so a lot of times on the small stuff, you know, in preparation for planting, if it's a, you know, a field full of weeds, we're going to cut them down as low as we can go in there with a non-selective herbicide, you know, just generic roundup, burn the area down as we call it, just killing all the vegetation that's there, you know, working the ground up the ground's going to work up a lot better with a tiller or a disc when you've got dried down vegetation on top of it, instead of three feet tall of growing grass and you're trying to pull a disc through it. You know, it's, it takes a lot more um, tractor fuel and tractor time to get it worked up when you do it that way, as well as any nitrogen that you've got in the soil that that upcoming crop could benefit from your soil is going to burn a bunch of it trying to decompose all this fresh green um, vegetation that you just disked or tilled into the ground. And so there's, there's a lot of benefits to spraying ahead of time. Um, that being probably one of the biggest ones is that your ground's going to work up a lot easier and a lot faster when you've gotten rid of all the current vegetation there with the herbicide and it's all nice and dried down. Uh, the row crop farmers don't do it that way for no reason. I mean, it's a, there's a science to it. It's just, it's easier on everything to, get rid of all that and then you can disc and till obviously with a smaller seed stuff i like to cultipack after i've worked the ground up broadcast onto that cultipack ground and then come back in there and and lightly drag and or cultipack it again to incorporate those small seeds just in that top you know quarter half inch of soil um, so that we know they're not getting buried too deeply uh, to be able to germinate so that's uh, i'd say the two two of the biggest failures on uh, food plots is is non-coverage of, of seed and putting it in at the wrong time of year. You know, one can come before the other, but not having that particular seed covered right is is one of the biggest failures that you're going to face. Do you, do you see a lot of people, and I would think that they would, as far as the cultipack and going at the only cultipack after that, they put the seed down, but they don't do it after that disc to kind of get a more of a level seed bed. Yeah. see that quite a bit. They miss that step. Yeah, it's um, it can make a huge difference, and it it's it's not it's not just that it levels the ground out, which it does. It does a great job of giving you a more uniform uh, seed bed to to broadcast in, so you're getting rid of those valleys and stuff like that that your disc might create. 
Um, I always suggest to guys, you know, if you're disking pretty deep, that last pass and you're leaving a big furrow every pass you make, you know, come back over at that last pass and shallow your disc up a little bit to cover in your your ruts and, and the, the deep areas so that you're not creating areas where, that water's really going to saturate and run in you know, versus like you're talking about getting it a lot more level and uniform uh, with a cultipacker afterwards. Um, but it also, the cultipacking also really encourages water to travel through the soil like it did before you disc it up. So if you've got a really big tractor and a big disc or, or decent ground and it works up really good and really deep, and then you just go broadcast seed on it and leave it, you're going to have a, you're going to have areas that come up great. And you're going to have big areas that seems like nothing happens because you've just got all that airspace in the soil and, and you know, the, the water's not going to travel through it as well as it should. It's going to pond up in areas. So you're going to see real spotty results a lot of times that way. So, um, that's one of the biggest reasons I like to cold pack once or sometimes twice is to, you know, firm that seed bed back up so that rainfall travels through the soil, you know, a lot more closely to, to the way it should rather than having six or eight inches of really nice, fluffy, tilled up ground that looks pretty. But once it starts raining, you, it settles at different rates and you have a real spotty field. What about nitrogen, Austin? Yeah, especially on Nebraska's, do you come back after you've done your initial fertilizer and lime and then you planted, do you, do you come back and put some urea or nitrogen on it so many days after they, you know, three or four weeks after you planted? And is that a good idea to do? Yeah, it, you'll definitely see results out of it, especially if it's still early enough in the growing season that you've still got two or three weeks of, of really good growth left out of those plants before the cool weather shuts them down. You know, a, a second application of nitrogen can really kick those plants into high gear. I mean, you know, there, you want to have some out there to get it started. You want to have some some nitrogen available, you know, with whatever fertilizer blend you put down um, ahead of time. So some people will put you down enough that first application to, to feed it all the way through. Um, but you are going to see some increased benefits in those brassica plants, in a corn plant, uh, cereal grains are the same way, adding some nitrogen to it after it's got a root system up and going. And so that's where a lot of people are going to split their nitrogen applications, just like a row crop farmer is going to go back in and side dress his corn with nitrogen. You know, when it's up six inches to a foot tall, somewhere in that range, they're going to come back in there with, with a, a secondary application of nitrogen and put it right there at the roots and get some really instant results from their growth out of it. So brassicas are definitely a family of plants, you know, whether it be a turnip or a radish or any of them that, or, or high nitrogen lover. So a secondary application 30, 45 days after you're up and out of the ground can really, you know, you can just about watch them grow if you if you get the rainfall to go with it. When would you suggest doing that nitrogen? How many days after you plant? You know, if you plant and you get pretty quick germination out of your seed, you know, in that first week and you've got some stuff that's been out of the ground for, you know, two, three weeks, that's a great time to do it. You know, the plants are still at a stage where if you need to run over the plot with your spreader, you're not going to damage a lot of plants when they're that young as much as you do when they're, you know, when they get a little bit older and they're a little bit more, uh, you can break stalks and stuff like that over as they get a little bit older. So usually somewhere in that two to four week period while the plants are still real young and can rebound from being uh, run over. But just about in any situation, there's more benefit to that secondary application 
the risk you have of losing a few plants by, you know, running them over with whatever equipment are. You're definitely going to lose a few here and there, but you're usually outweighing that with the amount of growth that you're going to get out of what you're, you know, the extra uh, fuel you're putting down there. I know some guys like to wait into, into November down here. I don't know mm -hmm. if that different up north, November, you might not even be able to get in your food plot. If it's wet right. down here. Sometimes it's pretty dry. I think you get guys who are trying to fix what's left of their food plot. If it, you know, mm -hmm. Austin knows weather down here can go from bone dry. I mean, we've had some winters, you don't get no moisture until February. And it's just the way yeah. it goes in the south sometimes. And uh, so it's a little, little tougher. But I've had some guys that I know they like to go come back in November, middle of November, and put some fertilizer out. Yeah, it can really help, you know, when you get down into the, the deeper part of the south and, and deer densities are heavier. And regardless of what you plant, you know, a lot of these even larger three, four, and five-acre fields, if there's 60 deer ever evening out there browsing on it, it gets eaten down to a putting green pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of guys like you're talking about shit will, will come back in there with, you know, a, a good shot of nitrogen in November because it we're still got – it's not great growing weather, but it's still mild enough in most cases that you're going to get a big response from that nitrogen and give a – you know, get another boost out of it because a lot of guys down here are not seeing hardcore rutting action until the latter half of November up through, you know, middle of December. And so their food plots may be – really hit and browse down in January. Yeah. Yeah. So having something on the ground that they're coming to consistently that time of year can, can be a little bit more difficult than it is where they're already wrapped up up north. So yeah, definitely a good idea for secondary application because it your crops almost always going to respond to it. If you've got mild weather. Austin food plot screens, tall sorghum, I guess what some of it is. I don't know actually what all is in there, but has been really helpful for me as far as, you know, entrance and exit into your stand. And also I think the deer feel a whole lot more comfortable when, you know, they don't feel like there's as many eyes on them. They feel a little protected with, you know, mm -hmm. that around your food plot. What do you suggest as far as, you know, food plot screen, when to plant, how to plant? Is there anything specific there? Or are you in favor of that type of, you know, plant on a, on a food plot and just kind of, you know, how do you feel about that in general? Yeah, it can make a really big difference, especially if you've got a piece of ground where the food plots are going to get hunted fairly frequently. When you get down into the, you know, the Mid-South and the South and our terrain is made up of so much timber and a lot fewer openings and food plots, it's a little bit more critical that the food plots you do hunt and the open areas you hunt, you know, your entrance and exit is as concealed as possible because let's face it, you're going to go a lot of evenings and not shoot anything. And so every time that you're going and not shooting anything, you're setting yourself up for, you know, educating your deer and, and getting them onto your routine a little bit. So I think coming and going from a food plot, you know, a lot of times is overlooked because people just drive up to them and, or walk into them and they don't see any deer and they just figure they didn't spook any. But, you know, chances are if there was something there, it saw her or smelled you coming before you had a chance to see it. So you don't really know if you spooked anything or not, but having something that takes one of those senses completely out, which is their sight. And if you're entering the food plot, you know, with the wind in your face, like you ought to be anyway, there's two good reasons they can't see you coming or going and using something tall, whether it be using the native vegetation and, and fertilizing it and letting it get really tall, you know, to, to camouflage and, and hide your entrance and exit or using something 
uh, like you're talking about, like our blind spot, which is just a really tall growing uh, sorghum variety um, that gets 10, 12, 14 foot tall and planting it in strips, you know, to hide your entrance and exit. It can make a big difference in how wildlife respond to that field during legal hunting hours because that, that's what we're after. We want to see deer in the field, you know, during legal hunting hours. So the more we run them in, you know, r- more you run them out of there with them laying eyes on you or, or smelling you is uh, just kind of educating, especially those older deer that, you know, let's wait till dark before we come out here. So, and it doesn't take all that much to build a screen, you know, one, one pass with a tractor and something like that blind spot to create a eight or 10 foot strip that you can walk in and walk out behind um, can make a big difference, especially if you've got roads and you can plant the side of them coming into a, um, a blind, you know, that's, it's an absolute perfect way to just camouflage your entrance and exit. Even if you shoot a deer and the field doesn't clear, Nobody really likes to, you know, scare all the deer out of the food plot by watching you climb down the ladder, you know, if you can avoid it. So I used to not think that was all that big of a deal. But when you come to areas that are as heavily hunted as a lot of places are in the south and as long as our hunting seasons can go, you know, if deer see somebody crawl up and out of shooting houses from October all the way to January, you know, by January, they're, they're pretty dang skittish. And they're starting to look at windows in these shooting houses and like, oh, windows, windows are down. Yeah, I'm not coming out. So it makes a big difference. Is that what you try to do, 8, 10 feet wide, somewhere in that range? Yeah, doesn't take much, man. Just, you know, just think of a, a good solid tractor width or a tractor implement wide. Um, is all it takes of that stuff, you know, whether it be a native grassy plant or something like the, the blind spot or, you know, planting pine trees and letting them grow up as a screen, you know, to produce a, uh, a camouflaged way in and out. All of those, all those things can work. Um, but it doesn't take a, it doesn't take something a hundred yards wide to disguise you. One last major question for me, and that is, you know, for the, the guy that's wanting to keep some deer on his property a little bit more, didn't have, you know, much bedding area i guess on him with whatever acreage or woods he has what's up and you hear a lot of things from hinge cutting to select cutting and selective herbicides what what would i'm sure a lot more details that'd be a lot more for you to say specifically but what what would you suggest for for people to kind of look at doing when it comes to creating some more bedding areas on your property yeah really all of the above but it's like you said there's there's a lot of variables um everybody's timber is a little bit different and so you know, if you've got 100 acres and 90 of its pine trees, you probably need to do, you know, some heavy thinning and create as much bedding area, you know, that they want to be in. You never want to have a monoculture. You know, you want your piece of property to look like a quilt, you know, patchwork of, of all different, you know, types of habitat. And so, you know, when we're going after this checkerboard effect, so to speak, of, of having different things in all different areas of the property, um, you know, if you've got primarily timber, and even if it's not high quality timber, it never hurts to go in there and start cutting some trees, you know, getting rid of some low quality trees, letting some sunlight hit the ground, you know, and letting stuff grow, you know, just native browse, uh, all this early successional plant community that's in your soil, it's got to have daylight. And so if you've got a heavy monoculture of, of timber that's camping over everything, you're not going to see a lot out of that. And a lot of people just don't want to cut their timber. And I, and I get it. It's pretty to look at. But it's not always what's great for, for wildlife. And a lot of times, you know, a really, really mature uh, forest 
the canopy underneath it, it's basically a, a biological desert under there. I mean, you've got great food for 30, 45 days if you've got areas that produce really good hard mass to acorns. But if you don't, or if, you know, let's say you cut that timber and let some sunlight start hitting the ground. And just like we were kind of talking about old field management, using herbicides to control unwanted species from taking over, you know, creating an area that's got downed trees in it, some standing trees that might be good acorn producers, you know, but a lot of heavy cover, heavy weeds, you know, places that deer like to bed up. It's also can be great for food, um, just escape cover. You know, it's probably one of the best things you can do for your property is create an area that they can go to and, and lay up and feel safe. And that might be hinge cutting on your place. That might be doing a clear cut. That might be taking, you know, a pine plantation and thinning it really, really hard and then using fire and herbicides to control that undergrowth and letting all the good stuff that's in there that needs that needs fire, that needs sunlight hitting it to to come out and get get thick and establish itself. So there's no right or wrong way, I think, to, to create cover on a place. It's very specific to obviously the size of the place you're dealing with and, and the type of timber that you're going to be getting rid of. Got five quick questions for you, if you don't mind, kind of just one answer type deals. What's something that you look forward to the most as it relates to food plot preparation and or habitat management in general? What's the one thing that gets you the most excited? Man, I, I love... I just love seeing the progression of crops. I love seeing all the work you put in start coming out of the ground. And then, you know, just a couple of weeks later, you can sit on that food plot, whether it be in a, you know, a bow hunting stand or, or a shooting house with a kid and then watch the wildlife come out and respond to the work you put in. So, you know, in the summertime for me, that seeing, you know, big pregnant does with these big old bellies walk, walking through soybeans or peas, whatever you've planted for them seeing bucks that are, you know, growing that velvet rack and seeing them enjoy and utilize all the work you put into growing these food plots for that specific reason, to give them a better source of food, you know, than, than what's available. Um, I get a lot of kick out of that. You know, I'm, I'm not much into, I'll shoot a lot of deer every year just to create a, you know, lower the deer density in the area, but I would a whole lot rather just sit there with a the camera, you know, and watch, watch deer and see how they respond to all the work you put in. If you can only pick one, what's your favorite fall food plot variety? Oh, man, I'm probably going to have to say, you know, we've got a blend called Wintergrass Plus. It's got cereal grains. It's got some rape. It's got some radish and just a touch of clover in it. For the Mid-South and the South, I think it's really hard to beat. I like to beef mine up with just a little bit of extra radishes um, just because they just absolutely go crazy over radishes. So I like to... You know, if I've got a really big field, I'll actually split it and I'll have winter grass all on one end and then I'll have nothing but radishes or maximum on the other end, kind of giving them a, you know, a choice there of some early, mid and late season food. So um, I'm, I'm just a really big fan of radishes overall, whether it be in a blend or as a standalone, um, they're usually going to be my go to. What is the one step or one process or the one piece of equipment that you just simply can't do without when it comes to? what you do, your habitat management? Um, a good spray rig, no doubt. You know, I know there's a lot of, you know, bad vibes around herbicides and stuff like that, but when they're used properly, they really are some, they are super safe. Um, and you can make such a huge difference on your piece of property with a spray rig. 
you know, just like we were talking about managing old fields, getting rid of a, a lot of invasive species. A lot of people have no idea just how many invasive species we deal with in the, in the U.S. They're just, they're not supposed to be here. And they take up a ton of our habitat and take up area where stuff that is a lot more beneficial to wildlife should be growing. You know, whether it be privet hedge or, you know, pigweed in a row crop field, you know, there's a lot of these just super invasive species. So whether it be spraying native vegetation to increase the nutritional value with foliar herbicides and fertilizers, spraying your actual food plots, I, I couldn't get by without my spray rig. It's probably going to be my number one tool, but I'd have to I'd have to say my drip torch would be right there beside it because um, I'm a, I'm a I'm a really big fan of burning. Other than Shed, excluding him, when you think about hunting success, who's the first person that comes to your mind? First person that comes to my mind is Fred Bear. I'm pretty old school. My dad still shoots you know traditional stuff with his bow. You know he's always cut his own feathers out of turkey wings and does a pretty old school. So I've been around traditional archery my whole life. I don't shoot one currently, but I'm a big fan of traditional bow hunting and, and the guys that were killing big critters and killing them all over the world with some really, really primitive weapons. So he, he's my go-to guy when I think about, you know, just a, he's a woodsman, he's a hunter and he's a killer. Uh, he can be all three at the same time. But, you know, Shad's probably right there with him, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. If you could only have three songs on your musical playlist, what would they be and why? Man, that's that's tough because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big music fan. I don't know if I could go with three particular songs, but three bands. I'm a huge Metallica fan. I have been for a long time. Uh, I, it's gonna it's gonna be something Metallica related, but I'm also a huge classic country fan. Um, you know, Lefty Frizzell, Glenn Campbell type music. I'm I'm a huge fan of old classical country. And then you know, probably over the last five years, one of my favorite bands has been Whiskey Myers. Just a, a, a huge fan of them. Got to actually hang out with them a little bit last year in West Point. We had them down there, yes. um, and that was just that was just icing on the cake. So. Uh, always been a huge fan of them and that style of music. You know, I just think it's a, it's a really good mix to me between classical rock and, and, and country and just intertwined, just um, it's lifestyle music. You, you can feel what they're uh, talking about in their music because they've lived it. It ain't something they're making up. I can live with that pretty good. Can't you shed? That's good. Mm -hmm. That's good. We, we get some strange. Austin on those sometimes Man, leave. You're right in line with where shed and I are at. Uh, again, I thank you for being here with us today. I enjoyed it greatly. I may have enjoyed it too much. I got notes all over the place, and I, th I thought of 30 other questions I could ask. Maybe we can do a, a, a later at some point to even ask you more. Shed, anything Absolutely. that you want to conclude with? No, I, Austin's, Austin is the man when it comes to all this stuff. He's the guru. Ain't no need to ask me none of that stuff. Well, I appreciate, Austin, you taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know it's got to be a busy time of the year, and I, you know, the older I get, which I'm, I'm older than both guys, but the older I keep getting, the more I enjoy the I killed a deer, what, two years ago there in Illinois. The only reason that sucker was there is because I had sugar beet and I actually shot him on the ground before I got him a tree. And I've never done that, you know, with a bow and his head was buried in sugar beets. And I was just taking a step and kind of, I wanted to be quiet to get to my stand. So I didn't alert anything. And those sugar beets allowed me to get a shot him on the ground, shot him at 17 yards and never knew I was there. And of course, they yeah. can 
but at the same time, that sucker wouldn't have been anywhere in that country because there was there's no crops in there. It's all, uh, all right. the and uh, that, that was the reason. So I had some great luck with that. And it's, it's enjoyable every year to see the benefits of your, of your hard work, whether you kill anything or not, you know, just knowing that you're absolutely it's pretty darn enjoyable that you had some role in that. And you get to do that every day. So. Yeah. So we always kind of, that's kind of the natural progression of, of us hunters, you know, as you get older, you get to where, you know, it's a lot less about uh, bringing something home and a lot more about, you know, the enjoying the experience, you know, and whether that be like you're talking about having a situation that a food plot afforded you like that, that you may not have had otherwise, but all that's just, all that's about being a gamekeeper and trying to make, you know, your little piece of dirt, whether it's 40 acres or 4,000 uh, better than it was when you got to it, you know? So I think that's why we all naturally progress into enjoying the smaller stuff and the work that goes into it rather than, you know, always looking for the, the bonus of the kill. So uh, right. I'm right there with you. Well, awesome. Thank you again, Shed. Hey, great to have you back in the US of A, out of the Gulf and back home. I feel a lot better just knowing you're back in Mississippi. So glad to have you back and you know, enjoyed your vacation. But yeah. hey, thank you. I know you got things to get to. So again, awesome. Appreciate you being here and, and we'll see you guys later on. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Austin. All right, man. See y'all. Thank you for spending time today with Shed and I and our guest, Mr. Austin Delano of Mossy Oak Biologic and Mossy Oak Gamekeepers. Austin is a habitat and wildlife consultant and is directly involved with the research and development of Mossy Oak Biologic. He is without a doubt one of the top experts in the industry and has a real passion for making our hunting and wildlife habitat as good as it can possibly be. You can find Austin's content on social media, YouTube, as well as through Mossy Oak Gamekeepers and the Mossy Oak Go app. Please assist us by liking and rating today's episode and by subscribing to the Foshi Creek Podcast. We are not a sponsored podcast, so the only way we're able to reach a broader audience is by word of mouth and the number of subscriptions, likes, and positive ratings that we receive. Please share our content on your social media platforms and with all your hunting and outdoor friends. Thank you again for listening. As always, we learned everything we knew down on Foshi Creek.